history of God's people, there has been an order to their time of worship. Part of the order that we see even in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament is when the people of God would get together, there would be the reading of Scripture. So one of the things that we do every single week here at Calvary is we have a, a time of welcome. We want to have a, a time where we greet and just to uh, say hi and hello and Thanks for those who are visiting and those types of things. And those are more of a nicety and, and, and formalities that we have. Uh, but they are part of our worship because they are a greeting. One of the things that's interesting about scriptures is always a greeting. And uh, whenever you call someone, there's typically a greeting. Or if you write a letter, there's a greeting. And so we try to have a greeting in our service. And so, yes, it's a nicety. Yes, it's a formality. But we see it as part of the necessary makeup of our worship. We also have a time of singing. We have a time whenever we just take uh, the part of the service and we give those songs of truth back to the Lord. And so it sounds good with harmony. It makes us feel good to sing. But ultimately, singing isn't about sounding good and it's not about feeling good. It's about singing the truth of our God back to Him. And so it's a matter of praising the Lord through our song. And you're going to see how these songs fit so perfectly into today's sermon. Another part of our worship that we have is, uh, if we're doing the ordinance, if we do baptism or we do the Lord's Supper, we include that to be part of our gathering time on, on a Sunday morning, which is the first day of the week. We also have a time of reading the Scripture. And that's what we're about to do here. And then we're going to have the preaching of Scripture, which is the exposition of what we just read or the explanation of what we just read. So I know you've been standing, but I'm going to ask you to stand again as we read in our text this morning from Romans chapter 1. We're going to read, uh, we've been in verse 16 now for the last four weeks, I know, but bear with me. We're going to make it over this hump, but we're going to start in verse 16 and we're going to read down through verse 22. Brothers and sisters, when we read the scriptures, understand something. The most perfect thing that I will do today and that you will do today is to read and hear the scriptures being read. This is the word of God. And so this is as close to perfection as we get. And so let's read in their text, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And remember, this is Apostle Paul. He's saying these things. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, for in the gospel, in it, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or, gave, or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Go ahead and be seated. But just know that was the word of the Lord. So Romans 1 16 through 22 is our text. The title of today's sermon is When the Truth is Rejected. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about this suppression of the truth. But what about those who've never heard the truth? What about those who have never heard the gospel? They've never heard the name of of Jesus. Can a person suppress a truth that they've never heard? You see, there are those who live in parts of this giant globe that you and I inhabit who have never heard the gospel of Jesus. Millions of people who've never heard the name Jesus Christ. Untold millions of people. People who live in remote parts in Africa, in India, and other remote areas in the world. Perhaps even some in the USA, in Latin America, in Canada, all over. There, you're going to find somebody who's never heard the gospel. Are those people going to be condemned or going to be judged? over a truth that they've never heard? Now you've got to admit, that's a good question. And one that many of you, I'm convinced, probably have thought of in the past. This is an objection that Paul is answering in this text. What about those who have never heard the truth about God? Don't they have an excuse to protest against the wrath of God? Or better yet, how can God be justified in His wrath against those who've never heard the truth about God? Many secular apologists, many uh, atheists, and those who would argue against Christianity actually use this as a part of their argument. And they say that God is unjustified by condemning people who've never heard the gospel. And so this is an argument that exists today. It was an argument in Paul's day. And so Paul is addressing this objection. We're going to continue this in Romans chapter 2. Paul continues this argument. But let me just read before we get there. Let me just kind of show you this train of thought with Paul with regard to the gospel, with regard to those who suppress the truth, and this objection to those who have not even heard the truth. And listen to what it says in Romans chapter 2, 11 through 12. It says, for God shows no partiality. In other words, he doesn't look at these who have the truth and these who don't have the truth and show any partiality to either one of them. 
Has nothing to do with that. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. In other words, those who have sinned without knowing the law, they didn't know the truth, they never heard about the truth, they're going to perish the same way without it, or just the same without it. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. God shows no partiality. All have sinned. Regardless if they know the truth or do not know the truth, if they've known the law or didn't know the law, if they've never heard the Ten Commandments, they're still guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments. This is what Paul is saying. And so the verdict to the objection is in Romans 1.20, which we read, so they are without excuse. They're without excuse. To those who argue that God is being unfair to pour out His wrath against people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Paul, or who've never heard the truth, Paul is saying absolutely not. There is no justification. They are without excuse. They have no defense. There is no justification regardless of how much they plead their case. Everyone is guilty and is deserving of receiving the wrath of God. Now then, let me tell you why. The reason why is because every person has some truth. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Every person has some truth. Look at what it says in verse 19 and 20 of our text. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been what, church? In the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Think about the day of judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. You will die, you will be judged. The day of judgment comes and people who have rejected God, they didn't believe in God, they claim to be atheist or agnostic even, but they have, uh, or they were just spiritual, but they worship things like trees and birds and the created order. And God is going to condemn them to eternal hell. And their defense will probably sound something like this, but wait a minute, you can't judge us. We never heard about Jesus. You say that we've rejected your truth. We never heard the truth. We didn't know. To which Paul's answer is, you had some truth. You had the truth of creation that told you there was a creator and you rejected that truth. Let me tell you something about there's two types of revelation, two ways that God reveals himself. There's natural revelation and special revelation. Natural revelation is the re revealing of God through the created order. It's through the world. God has revealed the fact that he exists through the very creation itself. That's why we call it creation, because it was created. There must be a creator. Logical flow of thought. You reject that truth no matter what you call it, the theory of evolution, naturalism, doesn't matter, you call it what you want. You worship the creation over the creator, you've rejected the creator. 
Let me tell you something about special revelation. Special revelation tells us who God is. It tells us who the creator is. That's why we have the Bible. God has not given us a world that we live in just to say he exists, but we have no way of knowing who he is, which is an agnostic view. We know there is a God, we just don't know how to know him. No, God says he has revealed himself both through creation and through his word. Now here's something you need to know about natural revelation. There's not enough truth in natural revelation in the created order to save you. That's what special revelation is for. But there is enough evidence of God in creation to condemn you if you reject it. You travel all over the world. And you're going to find in remote jungles, in remote areas where there is no civilization, you will not find atheists. Ever. Atheists don't exist in those contexts. Atheists only exist in civilized, educated places like the USA and other Western countries like us. When people become too evil for God. But in other parts of the world, they worship, they're very spiritual. They may not worship the creator, but they worship the creation. And so this is what Paul's addressing here. This is the argument. Paul is saying, no, that they are without excuse because what can be known about God is plain to them, having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. What does God make plain to them? He makes plain to them the world. The marvelous things about God is that he created the world for nothing. He didn't have anything to begin with, but his word himself, he was the only thing that existed. He didn't start with material or matter. He created matter and materials out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. He is the designer, the builder, and the finisher. Yet, you and I today live in a country, a world, and I just shouldn't say our country, all over the world, in Germany, and Britain, and various places throughout the world. We live in a world that persists in the theory of naturalistic evolution, which is the theory of chance. It is the belief that everything in all of its complexities exists only through a process of evolution that has occurred over the course of billions and billions of years. The idea through evolution is that if you give a thing long enough, it will evolve and develop into a very complex system. Even though we never have seen an ape turn into a human, even though we've never seen any shred, any single bit of evidence, it is a theory. That is why it's a theory is because there's no evidence. And so it's this theory of chance. And the world is, is insisting upon this. It's in every natural geographic commentary, in every uh, documentary of planet Earth, you're going to hear the billions of years, the processes of evolution, and how we've developed into these extreme complexities. This is the world's theory. And so... When you develop that type of suppressive system, God becomes the unnecessary hypothesis. He's no longer needed. 
We don't need God to exist. We have evolution. However, the Christian argument is that evolution is the suppression of truth. This is our argument this morning. Anything that goes against God as a creator, as the creator, is a suppression of the truth. So our position this morning is that evolution is a suppression of the truth. It is the refusal, naturalistic evolution, is the refusal to accept the complexity of the world has any special design and therefore must be the greatest accident in the history of nothingness. That's what it is. Ultimately, brothers and sisters, to embrace the theory of evolution is the refusal to think rationally about the complexities of life. An interesting word that is used in verse 20 from the Apostle Paul, the things that have been made, the Greek word there for made is poema. It's where we get our English word poem from. In other words, what Paul is saying is that In the same way that a poet creates a poem, God has created the world by using wisdom and mastery and ingenuity to create something amazing and marvelous and beautiful. This is the word that God has so chose to place in here to describe his creation. God creates in the same way that a poet creates a poem. He creates in the same way that a builder builds a house. There is no rational thinking person, not one of you, drove or ever have driven past a home and looked at that home and said, what a beautiful accident that is. If you've ever saw the beauty of a home, your immediate thought is that there was a designer There was a blueprint. Somebody followed some plan. Somebody had a dream, a vision, and some way of carrying out that vision and that plan. And the product is something wonderful and marvelous. We don't think, wow, over billions and billions of years, sticks just formed together and then paint slapped itself on there and a roof and shingles fell and it just all came together. No rational person looks at the complexity of a house and has the audacity to think of something so stupid. And yet, we look at the complexities of the world that are far more greater than a house, like the body, the microorganisms that exist to make up the macro of our humanness demands a designer. That's rational thinking. There must be something greater than ourselves. That's what creation says. In fact, notice what Scripture says. It says that in their wisdom they become fools. It's foolishness to dismiss rationale on the basis of the suppression of the truth. And why do they do it? Because of their wickedness. I would say this. I just said twice that in the same way that a poet creates a poem and in the way a builder creates a house, God creates the world. Let me tell you something, God did it even better because a builder starts with materials, a poem starts with words, God started with nothing. 
He started with nothing. That's what makes him God. That's what makes it so marvelous and so wonderful. The theory, for the theory of evolution to exist, it must be a constant suppression of the truth about God. Look at Psalms 19, one through four. It reminds me of the song we just sang. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Let me say that last part. Their voice, the voice of creation, goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. This verse tells us there's not a people group on the face of planet earth where God's creation does not cry out the fact that there is a creator. Therefore, every single person who inhabits this earth, every person on on planet earth must know that there is God. There is some truth, some truth in every single person's life. And that truth is creation. And this creation cries out and says there must be an intelligent designer. There must be something behind all of this. It's interesting, by the way, studies are showing more and more people are leaving atheism for agnosticism because of rational thinking. That doesn't make them Christian. It doesn't mean that they're going to heaven. What they've come to the conclusion is, is that we believe that there must be something greater. Now, we might be some alien science project. That's, that's another theory that's out there. We're just a failed or a successful science project of an alien who exists in some other macrochasm in the world or outside of the world. We exist in a tube but this idea of agnosticism is that there is something greater than ourselves. We just don't know who he is. And we can't know who he is. I believe that's wrong. And I want to tell you why. This is the caveat. Every person who rejects the truth increases in darkness. Every person who rejects the truth. A person who comes from atheist to agnosticism is not getting closer to God. They're just swapping one failed system for another failed system. Every person who rejects the truth increases in darkness. Look at Romans 1, 21 through 22. It says, for they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. When the world is exposed to the truth of God through natural revelation, and reject the truth of God and do not regard God as creator or the creator as God and they're not thankful to God, their foolish hearts are darkened. In other words, what was already dark is going to become darker. They're going more and more into darkness. They're going more and more into deception. We need to understand something this morning that the opposite of truth is not error. The opposite of truth is sin. The opposite of truth is not a mistake. The opposite of truth is sin. Verse 18 in our text says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why are they suppressing the truth? Why are they rejecting the truth? It's because of their unrighteousness. It's because of their sin. It's not because they made a mistake. It's not because they just haven't been able to get there. It's because they are in sin. You see, God's wrath is against the unrighteous acts of men, not because of their mistake, but because of their sin. It is man who is holding back the truth of God in their life by their own sin. This is one of the most horrifying passages in all the Bible that I'm about to read, by the way. Listen to what it says. I've already read it in past weeks, but listen to it. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What does this verse tell us? Those who are in deception and who reject the truth of God are in, in their own sin are going to be given a stronger delusion. They're going to dig further into their own darkness. Why would God do this? Because they turned from the truth. They observed creation. They rejected the truth. The truth that God gave them, they rejected it. Therefore, God gives them what they desire, a darker lie. Let's just say, for example... Let's forget about the person in the remote area who's never heard the truth. We live in a country where everybody has access to the truth. You've got internet. We've got churches on every corner, especially in the South. Say a man comes in these doors one Sunday morning and he hears the word of God preached. And at the end of the service, another part of our worship is giving. And one of the things we do is we make mention occasionally that we've got giving boxes at each exit. And we encourage, give generously. Now here at Calvary, we typically only say, members, this is for you to give. Guests, we never put you under that obligation, but we do expect our members to give generously. We believe the Bible tells us that God loves generosity. So at the end of the sermon, I talk about these offering boxes, but all this man hears is they're after my money. And he leaves the church not thinking about the sermon, not thinking about the missions that our church supports and thinking about missionaries in other countries that we support and missionaries in our own country that we support. Not thinking about the ministries, the children's ministries and the youth ministries, the outreach ministries, the fact that we had some several thousand people on our campus uh, this past fall festival that we had and everything we did was free. He didn't think about any of the ministries that we did. The only thing he heard was, they want my money and I'm never going back to that church. That's all they want. Preachers are just after money, 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 money. So he goes home, gives no more thought to it. He's sitting at home one day and some time goes by and he hears a knock. He goes and he opens the door and there's two false witnesses there at his door. And he says, yeah, can I help you? And they said, sir, we're just here to tell you there is no hell. He said, oh, well, hey, come on in. I'd love to hear what you have to say. And he accepts that false teaching. On the basis of what did he accept that false teaching? Was he in error? Did he just miss something? No, it was in the unrighteousness of his own greed that God sent him a stronger delusion. And he loved that lie 
because he plunged further and further into darkness through the suppression of truth by his own unrighteousness. That's how this works. Whenever you suppress the truth, you continue to suppress the truth. You begin to fall for more and more deception. And it says that God is the one who stands strong delusion. It's not an error. It's not a mistake. It's a sin that causes you to reject God's truth. Jesus gives this warning in Mark 4.25. He says, For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So to the one who rejects God's truth, they will plunge further and further into darkness. But the opposite is true for those who accept God's truth. For those who are being saved, for those who are perishing, they're continuing to perish further and further into darkness. For those who are being saved, the, uh, the, the principle here, the truth here that we're coming to is that all people who accept the truth increase in truth. Listen to what he says in Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice the phrase, from faith for faith, or from faith to faith. This is talking about the process of moving closer to God. A person who lives in the remote jungle walks outside. He looks up. He sees the sun beaming. He sees the, the, the nature, the trees responding and things going to the sun. And he sees the animals and he watches the kingdom and he studies the creation around him. And he walks out at night and he sees all these stars and the best that he can tell with no civilization whatsoever around him there must be something outside of this. Something that's greater than this. And is from the truth that God has revealed to him convinced that there is a God. But his next step is this. God, if you are real, I want to know who you are. I want to know who you are. This is from faith to faith. This is taking the truth that God has given to you and acting upon faith and moving closer to God through faith. Moving from faith to faith, increasing in your faith through the truth that God has revealed. Again, there's not enough in special or in natural revelation to save you. There needs to be more. And so the next question is, Brother Greg, do we have any biblical examples of this? We have at least two. In Acts chapter 8, we have the Ethiopian eunuch. Here was a man who somehow, some way was convinced that there was a God, but did not know who God was. So he did what, was, what he had heard. He's been inquiring. He's been trying to figure out perhaps he did just like that scenario I gave you. He just came to this conclusion, God, you exist. I want to know who you are. So what does he do? He travels to Jerusalem. And he goes to Jerusalem and he's trying to learn about God. He's trying to figure it out. Well, he can't even find God in Jerusalem. So he buys a scroll, the book of Isaiah, but it was in the form of a scroll. And he leaves, not having found what he was searching for. But what does God do? He takes a deacon out of the church there in Jerusalem named Philip. And Philip is somehow 
transported to where this, uh, this, and I think it was miraculous, but somehow God took, takes Philip and he puts him with this Ethiopian eunuch. And here he is in his chariot and he walks up to him and he's reading Isaiah and he says, hey, do you know what you're reading? He says, I have no idea what I'm reading unless somebody explains to me. I mean, I'm reading here about the sheep that's being led like a, like a dumb lamb to its shear. And I, who is he talking about? And he said, and the Bible says that Philip took him right there in Isaiah and he preached Jesus to him. And right there, that man gave his heart to Jesus Christ, to the glorious gospel of God, and he was saved. By what? By the divine intervention of God and his sovereignty, who took this man who was on this quest, who was seeking after God, had no idea how to find him, and God placed Philip there at that time to share Jesus Christ with him. He took some truth and he increased that truth to more truth. Jesus said, when you search for me with all of your heart, you'll find me. Obviously, we see the sovereignty of God in all of this. God is working those pieces of the puzzle out, but I think it's a marvelous thing and gives us great hope. We also have in Acts chapter 10, you have the Roman centurion named Cornelius. He was also a man who, the Bible just says he was a God-fearing man. He believed in God. He believed there was a creator. He believed that there was some higher being. He just had no idea who he was. So God takes Peter, sends him to Cornelius' house. And Peter even said, you know, it's unlawful for me to be here. I'm not even supposed to be here. But God has made it clear to me through this revelation that I'm supposed to come to you and I'm here to tell you about Jesus. And he does and this man is saying, his house is saved. So many people were saved because here is what God is doing. He's taking truth. He's revealing truth. Truth is accepted and more truth is given. And it's from faith to faith that we see God is working. And I just say that to make the point that Paul, I believe, is making here. There's nobody in the world that's exempt. I'm convinced with all of my heart, just basis of these two examples that I've given to you, that if there is some remote jungle somewhere where there's people who know that there's a God, they're convinced in their hearts that there's a God and they want to know who God is, I believe that God will crash a helicopter filled with missionaries to get them the gospel. He will get the gospel to them somehow, just like he did with Philip, just like he did with uh, Peter. He will do it. And by the way, just like he did with you, your salvation is no accident. Your salvation is no accident. I, you know, I've, I've said this weeks ago and I think it just warrants to be said again. You are not saved because you had a greater opportunity because you were born in Mississippi where the gospel was preached more than if you would have been born in Africa or some other place. Uh, Maple, I'm sorry if I can use you in my sermon illustration. Maple's from Africa. She grew up in a place where she never heard the gospel. And her testimony was that God used the military to get her family to this location. And God has put in her heart, even all the way from then, that there was a God, that God existed. And she came here to Calvary Baptist Church. She heard the gospel. She's been gloriously saved by the grace of God through His sovereignty in putting her with the gospel because God is sovereign and He's in control and He moves things just as He sees fit. And so God can take, it don't matter where you're from, it don't matter where you're at, it don't matter how many opportunities you have. You're not saved on the basis of opportunity. You're saved on the basis of grace. That is our truth. That is God's truth. 
And we always get caught up here in thinking about the people in remote jungles and we ask that question, well, God can't be justified for condemning them to hell if they've never heard the gospel. Well, first of all, God is completely justified because every person has some truth. But I want to flip that around. What about places where people have the opportunity to hear the gospel every single day and reject it? What about people who live in a country where they can turn the radio on, the TV on, and some of these maybe we would disagree with doctrinally, but even some of those who we would disagree with doctrinally still preach the gospel? In fact, I know there have been people who have been saved in churches that we would completely disagree with because even in spite of their false doctrines, the gospel was gloriously preached and taught or read. But what about those? What about those who live within an earshot of our church here who will die and go to hell? You see, it's not on the basis of opportunity, is it? Because there are people who live in places like Mississippi and all over the U.S. where the gospel is being preached. There are people, by the way, who go to church every single Sunday who hear the gospel being preached and every single Sunday they reject it. Every single Sunday they say no to God. Maybe they don't think they're saying no to God. Maybe they're going and they're picking up life principles. But let me tell you something. You're not saved on the basis of life principles. You're not saved on the basis of self-medicating. You're not saved on the basis of success. You're not saved on the American dream. You are saved only by the truth of God's gospel. That's it. And if God has put you in a place of truth, know this. Know this last little thought and we're going to close. God will judge you by the truth you reject. God will judge you by the truth you reject. Whether it's the truth of rejecting God as creator or whether it's even coming to church and rejecting that God is your savior. God will judge you on the basis. He is no respecter of persons. He shows no partiality. You will either die by the law or you'll die without it. You'll perish with it or without it. You'll be judged with it or without it, but you'll be judged. You'll be judged on the basis of what you reject. And so I speak to you this morning who come to church. And maybe you feel like, you know what, I've been coming to church. I've been coming to this church for many years. I've been coming for the last five years. I've been coming for 10 years. I've been coming for 20 years. And there's no way I could, could, could come up in front of everybody and, and, and make that known that I've not truly trusted in Christ because what are people going to think? Let me tell you something. If that's the basis of your suppression of truth, you're suppressing it on the basis of pride, caring what other people think. We don't make decisions for Christ on the basis of what other people think. It's for an audience of one. If there is such a desire in your heart to give your life to the Lord, do it. Trust in Him. Believe in Him. Put your faith in Christ to be your Savior. Heavenly Father, thank You for this day. And thank You for Your truth. And thank You for showing us that there are answers to the objections in life, that you're unjust if you would condemn a person for never ever hearing the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, your word tells us that you've made yourself very plain and very clear to the world around us. Every person has some truth. Every one of us know there must be a creator. And any suppression of that truth has done so in unrighteousness. 
It's done so because we don't want to have any authority in our life. We're prideful. We're rebellious. Lord, I pray for those who are trapped in their own rebellion and sin this morning. I pray that you would find it so fit in your grace. If there's anybody listening this morning that so desires to be set free and to know Jesus Christ, that Lord, that they would come to you by faith, believing in you, trusting in you, that you are who you say you are, and they would give their life to you. They would confess their sin and repent of their sin and seek your righteousness. Father, I pray for those who come and hear this word every single week. Lord, if there are any here suppressing the truth, help them to know they're doing so in unrighteousness. Give them desire, Lord, to seek your righteousness, to seek your favor. God, I pray for missions. I pray for missionaries all over the world today to go into unreached areas, share the gospel of Jesus. Help us, Lord, not to just uh, to, to become numb to the fact, Lord, we sometimes might read Acts 8 and Acts 10 and we think, well, if you're going to save them, you're going to save them anyway. But Lord, help us to know you've commanded us to go. You've commanded us to go out into the world and preach the gospel and to proclaim from the rooftops the good news of Jesus Christ. And help us to do so. Lord, help us to know we're part of that sovereign plan in sharing the good news of Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would just minister your word to our hearts. Encourage us by this word. And may you get glory through it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.